Welcome to St. Alphonsus Wellcast, the podcast where we explore the many facets of health and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Well-Being and a generous grant from the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to the St. Alphonsus Wellcast. Today we are talking about all things men's health in honor of November's Men's Health Awareness Month. Um, We are so lucky to have a very special guest on today. We have Dr. Joseph Williams. He is a urologist at the Idaho Urological Institute. And just to give a brief bio, he is board certified and is a founding member of the Idaho Urologic Institute and the Surgery Center of Idaho. He was born in Idaho and raised in the southeastern U.S. He is a decorated naval veteran in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield. And Dr. Williams served 10 years in the U.S. Navy. He was a Boy Scout leader from 1995 to 2018, and he enjoys backpacking, skiing, and running with his family and friends. He is medical director of the Surgery Center of Idaho, and he is a certified primary investigator with the American Association of Clinical Research Professionals. He's also a member of the American Urological Association, the Ada County Medical Society, and the Idaho Medical Association. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Urology and has served as a board member on the Idaho State Board of Medicine from 2011 to 2017, and he is the past president of the board of directors of the Ada County Medical Society and a director of the Idaho Physicians Network. In 2021, Dr. Williams was president of the Idaho Medical Association, and currently he is a president of the Independent Practice Association of Idaho. You have quite the CV. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And he is a persistent (laughs) professor of urology at the Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine. And occasionally, I'm hoping he sleeps. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In between meetings. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. Do you have anything to add about all of your accomplishments? (laughs) Oh, no. I just just don't mind going to meetings, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Well, again, we appreciate you coming on today. We have lots of questions for you, and we're so grateful for you coming on to the Wildcast, especially as November is coming with No Shave November and Movember movements that have um, highlighted men's health within the greater um, public relations field. Um, So in preparation for this interview, I am not a man. I am a woman, (laughs) and I do have a lot of men in my life. I have three brothers. I have a father. I have um, multiple male nieces, or not nieces, multiple male nephews, and uh, I have lots of men that I I like to hang out with. And so I've pulled a random sampling of men, and they will not be named to protect their privacy, (laughs) to come up with a list of questions um, to ask you about what men may want to hear about in regard to men's health. So if you could share with us, what are the most common issues you treat as a urologist in regard to men's health? Well, in, in urology, we, we deal with the, um, the male and female urinary tract and the male genital tract. So in men and women, uh, kidneys, bladder, urethra. So we deal with incontinence and, and um, uh, kidney stones, uh, urinary tract infection, things like that. And, and dealing with the male genital tract, that's that's penis, uh, scrotum, testis, um, and prostate. And so, with all of that being said, we we do a lot of cancer uh, work in urology, um, and then therefore in men, 
We talk about prostate cancer a lot and treat that and cure that, thankfully, frequently. Um, testis cancer uh, is always dramatic, uh, but thankfully with multidisciplinary care, we can expect to cure more than 95% of those patients when we make that diagnosis. Wow. Um, not a... Uh, and and that's a and that's a a medical uh, surgical success story over the past 50 years because in the 70s and before it was pretty much lethal and wow. now we we cure those 95% of the time um and so of course bladder issues um urination um sexual functioning in men so we can't take ourselves too seriously with our with our cancer processes because in between cancer visits we talk about making better erections and um, and pathologies and strategies in in that discipline um, so so we have to we have to be serious in urology but we also have to be able to talk about stuff that we learned about in high school. <laughs> so it sounds like a really broad range of things. It seems like it would keep it all very interesting <laughs> and fresh. Mm-hmm. Great. Patients are patients are are really interested in fixing the problems that they come to us with, and they're really happy to leave when we fix them. And so it's a it's a short term gratification um, uh, surgical process that that is is again gratifying. Um, and yeah, so, so it, it, it turns out cancer issues, functional issues such as benign prostatic hyperplasia and difficulties with urination when we age, um, and, um, and other urination issues and then sexual functioning issues. Those are all things that people would be very invested in fixing if there were issues there, I can imagine. Um, so right. since you talk about cancer and you deal with cancer a lot, um, let's talk about prostate cancer. Can you just share with our listeners what are the things that may put a man at risk for developing prostate cancer? So the, the, front, the front burner thing that everybody talks about is family history. Um, and and that's, a, that's a big issue, but people take that and they think, well, I don't have any prostate cancer in my family, so I don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Or the opposite side of the spectrum, my dad had prostate cancer, so therefore I'm going to have it. Mm -hmm. Actually not the case. Only 15% of prostate cancers occur in a family pattern. 85% occur spontaneously. So not having a family history or having a family history doesn't get us off the hook one way or another. We Mm -hmm. still we still should have it in our brains because it's the, it, it's the second leading cancer killer in men in the United States behind colon. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I misspoke. Behind lung. Okay. Colon is number three. Yeah. Uh, lung cancer, thankfully, is, is decreasing because we're not smoking as much as we have in, in generations past. Prostate cancer is still a solid number two and colon cancer is number three. Um, and so we have that reality, but that's balanced against the other reality, which is if a man has prostate cancer, they'll probably die of something else. Mm-hmm. It's so prevalent that it can be uh, a, a medium-grade and slow-growing process and not cause somebody's 
um, illness or death, but it can also be a killer. So, so we have to, we have to pay attention. And frequently, if we want to find it at early stages, we have to go looking for it with serial PSA testing and a yearly rectal exam beyond the age of 50. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the family history plays a role, but not always. Are there other things environmentally or dietary-wise or related to health habits that can affect a man's risk for prostate cancer? Yes, but they're not big risk factors. So we know that smoking and having a high-fat diet and being sedentary are all um, small impact risk factors toward getting prostate cancer. They're also impact factors for colon cancer Mm -hmm. and several other health issues. Um, But uh, we deal more with smoking with bladder cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a strong correlation between smoking and bladder cancer, but not with prostate cancer. So, so the big answer is probably no, not big environmental issues that Mm -hmm. set the stage for prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. But sort of that triad and uh, multiple multiple factors related to all sorts of health conditions can also increase your risk for prostate cancer. Exactly. Okay. And so if we have to go looking for it with those PSA tests serially and the rectal exams, who are you recommending be screened for prostate cancer with those methodologies? So everybody after the age of 50, uh, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty well accepted idea that that is smart Uh, Again, if a person has clinically localized prostate cancer, they almost never have symptoms. And there's this idea in the lay public and also amongst medical providers that we should be able to tell if we have a cancer. We should be able to feel something. But with prostate cancer, that is just not the case. It's like early stage colon cancer. It's in there growing. And unless we go looking with a colonoscopy or a uh, stool uh, blood test, mm-hmm. um, we won't find it. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we have to r- maintain vigilance. So after age 50, uh, everybody should get that checked. Um, after the age of 70 and beyond, that's where a bit of controversy uh, comes in. A, a lot of physicians kind of write off the possibility of prostate cancer uh, in their clinical considerations after the age of 70. I personally think that's a mistake because we can't tell how long somebody's going to live these days. Mm-hmm. If somebody makes it to 78, 79, which is the average life expectancy of men in the United States, uh, if they make it to 78, 79, uh, from an actuarial standpoint, the chance they're going to make it to 85 is pretty good. And so if we ignore the potential for prostate cancer in the early 70s, we could have somebody suffer from prostate cancer if we don't go looking for it in that group. So in my seat in the urology clinic, I have to worry about every man that comes in. So I, mm-hmm. I never stop screening. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with a, it's a good idea, and there's good research to back this up, that a screening PSA between 35 and 50, especially with a family history, is a good idea. Just one. Now, if that value is less than one, the patient can wait until they're 50. If it's higher than one, they they should probably have that assessed uh, with their primary care doctor. 
And so beyond that, every year or two and until 50 and then every year would is the most prudent way to tackle that. So 35 and 50 with a family history, it's still a good idea to have a screening PSA. Mm-hmm. And if you look at recommendations from various societies and um, experts, I feel like there's, you know, you see this with breast cancer. We see this not so much with colon cancer, but we see it a lot with breast cancer, too, where there's a little bit of dissonance between the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force and the American Cancer Society and then these specialty organizations such as the American Neurological Society in terms of who should be screened and how often. Um, you know, doing some research prior to this podcast and for my own clinical practice, I've seen recommendations that if PSAs are between this number and that number. It's okay to wait two years between levels, and you know maybe we don't need to do rectal exams after all. And what will be your response to those the variance and the opinions there among experts? It's it's actually an, an amazing story, and I'm I'm I've been in practice long enough to have lived through the the, the saga. Um, truly, the United States Preventative Services Task Force recommended that we stop worrying about screening for prostate cancer at all in 2012. Mm -hmm. With that recommendation, that made headlines, and and a lot of physicians kind of wrote off PSA testing then. What didn't make the headlines was in 2014, 2015, we started to see an increased rate of men being diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer, mm-hmm. meaning cancer that had already spread. And so then the United States Preventative Services Task Force revised their, their recommendations uh, to begin having a conversation again with your doctor about screening. That's as far as it went. Uh, and I think that's still where the USPTS stands. Um, Again, I have a more aggressive approach because I see those patients all the time. Right. Um, that that we're we are the physicians that get sent the patients that are having problems, and so it, it's interesting when you talk to different physicians what they're sensitive to, because it's what they see in clinic. Um, but that's why I think every man beyond the age of fifty needs a yearly PSA. The best way to find early stage prostate cancer is to have a good database of yearly PSAs over time. Mm-hmm. So we can look at the trend to decide, do we need to do a biopsy or do an MRI? Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the many men I spoke with who were very resistant to the rectal exam, <laughs> what does your discussion look like with these men in terms of that particular <laughs> exam that not anyone's too excited about? Right. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It is. And and when I when I it, 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 I get all kinds of responses when when I say yeah let's go on ahead and do an exam and people say well I don't like this and and I tell them well I'm not terribly charged up about it either but <laughs> it's an easy thing to do it's an easy thing to do and um, really urologists are kind of uh, nihilistic about that because in medical school we're we're trained to have sensitivities. Uh, regarding uh, what's what's weird or gross kind of chased out of us. And so the, the ethic, if you can reach it, you should examine it, pertains. Uh, it's a, the prostate is not terribly far into the rectal vault. And thankfully, prostate cancer happens on the posterior part of the prostate, 
peripherally more frequently than in the front of the prostate. So that's the part that we can reach and we can examine. Mm -hmm. So if we feel some asymmetry or feel some nodularity in the, in the prostate tissue, that's a signal that we need to pay attention to the PSA and or move on with a biopsy. And so there, even without a, a significant PSA abnormality, that can be an indicator of early cancer. So it's, it's an easy thing to do. It adds to the sensitivity of the whole process. It's not as sensitive as serial PSAs. I grant that. Uh, but it's a, it's a simple thing to do. So that's my answer. And when patients say, I don't want to do it, I say, okay, deal. Let's look at the PSA. Yeah, I really like that answer that you're giving people is that, A, you're not terribly charged up about it, but B, you're also not grossed out about it either. <laughs> right. And and also that idea that if we can reach it, we should examine it. I think in the era of having so many diagnostic modalities, imaging options, laboratory tests that we can perform, the physical exam still is so important in terms of managing our patients and diagnosis. And it's a, you know, a relatively inexpensive, easy test to do and, and gives us some great clinical information. So I really appreciate your perspective on that. Um, so bet. pivoting from prostate cancer over to other prostate issues, the most common, I would say over time, thing that you see men urologically, or at least I used to see in primary care was um, prostatic hyperplasia. Um, and if mm -hmm. you could just give mm -hmm. an explanation about why does this happen over time and what are the symptoms a man might notice and need to bring to the attention of their provider? So we're, for some reason, we're, we're built to have the prostate continue to grow. Um, beyond the mid-30s, uh, men's prostates continue to grow, and that's a normal situation. When I do a, a prostate exam and, and then I tell the patient, well, it's a little enlarged, but there's no other abnormalities, a lot of guys kind of recoil and they say, holy cow, it's enlarged? And I say, well, yeah, but that's normal. It's, it's okay to have it be enlarged. I, I expect it. Um, we don't treat a man with an enlarged prostate just based on exam. We have to listen to their voiding pattern symptoms and, and difficulties that they may have in that regard before we talk about looking at medical therapy or looking at surgical therapy. Um, and that frequently begins with a trial of uh, a, a drug class called the alpha blockers that relax the bladder neck, and it helps make urination within the large prostate more convenient. It creates a stronger stream, and uh, it just helps the process. We can go on with further medical therapy, but we also have surgical techniques to open up the prostatic urethra, the tube that drains the urine from the bladder through the prostate and on out. Um, when the prostate gets big, it can cause a squeezing process on the prostatic urethra, and therein lies the problem. Um, and so that starts the process of us trying to figure out, do we need to do something with the patient? And then what are our options in that patient's individual situation? We can find somebody with early symptoms that we can intervene with medications with. Sometimes early symptoms can respond beautifully to simple surgical procedures. Sometimes we find guys that are well on their way toward having a bad urinary obstruction problem. Uh, even to the point of renal failure, kidney failure, mm -hmm. uh, and in those folks, we have to we have to pull out the stops and and save their kidneys. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a big part of our day. Um, but again, a good message is not everybody has a prostate that needs treatment. Mm -hmm. 
So the men that you're thinking will need to get treatment or talk to their provider would be those who are having those voiding issues in terms of just urination frequency or difficulty starting a stream or waking up frequently at night, those kinds of men. You you gave my list right there. That is perfect. Yes. Yep, exactly. <laughs> those are the those are the symptoms that I really pay attention to. That's great. Yep. Good. Um, well, I appreciate your opinion on that as well. Um, and then pivoting again, what are some areas of men's health that you feel like are neglected or forgotten about by men or their providers? Well, um, the the in the big big picture, the simple fact that uh, a man in their oh gosh, forties, fifties, early sixties, the idea that if they're feeling fine. Um, then they don't need to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and men can be pretty stoic and ignore things. Um, and, and then we can get behind the eight ball sometimes. Um, a problem in the United States, a big problem, is this what I would consider an epidemic uh, called metabolic syndrome, where, where we have this triad of disease processes uh, dyslipidemia or high cholesterol, um, high blood pressure, hypertension, um, and uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, because we have an overweight problem in the United States that can drive all three of those pathologies, that whole triad can become its own uh, definable disease process that, that can throw a wrench in so many other aspects of machinery. So uh, a man in their late 40s is having some difficulties with making erections, um, but they feel fine, even though they may be 30 pounds overweight. They may weigh uh, 290 to 320. That is a bad situation, mm-hmm. and 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 that's that's the area in in men's health that I think our culture ignores, um, uh, and and we, we should be more sensitive to that. Um, you know, you watch, uh, you watch movies from, uh, the forties and fifties and, and you just pan over the, uh, large groups of people in, in pictures and they are way thinner than we are mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And, and even though we smoked like smokestacks back then, <laughs> we were, we were generally healthier mm-hmm. with these disease processes that I'm bringing up mm-hmm. and, and frequently those disease processes, which I don't treat primarily, cause men to have difficulties with what I do take care of, mm-hmm. erectile dysfunction, uh, testosterone issues, um, and, and cancer screening processes, uh, coronary um, artery disease, and, and heart health is a big deal as an ancillary to what I take care of because a young man who's showing up with erectile dysfunction needs their heart looked at mm-hmm. uh, because the same processes that result in erectile dysfunction are the, are the processes that result in early coronary artery disease and early myocardial infarction. So when I, I've, I'm frequently in clinic seeing a patient that is complaining about their erections and, and my recommendation first and foremost is you need a doctor to get your heart looked at. Mm-hmm. And I go, why are you telling me that? And mm-hmm. well, it's because you're here for this problem. So, so all that intermixes, and I think that's the, that's the crying need in, in public health today as it relates to men's health. 
Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that up. When I was working in family medicine, I think the number one issue that would bring men between the ages of 25 and 45 really into the primary care provider was erectile dysfunction. And, you know, I'm not familiar with the statistics in regard to this, but it appears as though, based on what I've seen, that erectile dysfunction is very rarely a primary process. It's usually secondary to another process in the body, if I'm if I'm correct. Absolutely, absolutely. You put that. You put that beautifully. It, um, it, it isn't usually a primary problem in young men. Well, I yeah, I appreciate that. And again, I'd like to just urge our listeners who are between this age, if you know somebody or if you yourself are struggling with that issue, definitely get into a provider to be sure that that can be evaluated thoroughly and be sure to advocate for yourself if anyone decides to throw you a medication to help with erectile enhancement. Um, There are definitely other things to evaluate in that regard. Um, And then just pivoting again with, um, you spoke a little bit about testosterone and how that can be an issue for men and that metabolic syndrome process. Um, What can men look for to know that their testosterone levels are low? And and what's your recommendation in terms of evaluating that and potentially even treating that? So it's a, the idea toward low testosterone has really changed over the last 10 years. And if I had to point at a reason for that, it's because there are more and more manufacturers of testosterone and testosterone products. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 lay press has been pumped with this idea that you need to make sure you you don't have low T. Mm-hmm. And the list of symptoms for somebody that has low testosterone is an easy thing to self-ascribe to. So to have a 38 year old who um, has been married for for 15 to 17 years, who reports that they have more difficulty in keeping weight off and they want to take a nap in the afternoon, they don't feel very aggressive at work, their libido has changed, uh, and they're worried about having low testosterone. All that can absolutely be part of being 38, <laughs> and Absolutely. not uh, necessarily the in the with low testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and that's being 38 or being 45 or being 62. Uh, you know, life changes in our bodies change, but being cognizant of the possibility of low testosterone is perfectly reasonable. Now, the vast majority of people that I test have a low normal testosterone, but it's still within normal limits. So this idea that our testosterone needs to be higher mm-hmm. than 300 nanograms per deciliter, that's a great blanket number to think about, but it also depends on the lab assay that is used at the lab that is working the serum sample. Many assays have a lower normal range limit. And so I've seen a lot of people treated with hormone replacement therapy with a PSA that's within normal limits, but it is lower than 300. That person, generally speaking, doesn't need to be treated. Uh, but the, and, and the problem with being on hormone replacement therapy is that if that therapeutic goes on for more than a year, year and a half, that patient's fertility is going to be threatened. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, their body can lose its own competence to make its own testosterone, and we can make somebody dependent 
on hormone replacement therapy forever. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively conservative about who I treat with testosterone and testosterone products. Um, it's, it's worthy of good discussions. Uh, it, it's an easy thing to, again, ascribe to and think you, you need when actually making tougher decisions to go to the gym routinely and do the things we learned when we were in the second grade Eat well, don't get overweight, get good sleep, have lots of friends, smile a lot, laugh a lot. All that stuff is is way more important than being on testosterone. Right. So true. Um, and then in terms of, you know, you mentioned treating for a year or so. Is it sort of like a bridge where you'll treat people for a while and, like, kind of let them get their act together, so to speak, and then talk about removing the replacement therapy and seeing how they do? or? I don't. I don't like to start that process because, um, unless it's unless it's indicated, uh, mm-hmm. because when when a man is getting testosterone, um, if it's indicated or if it's a relatively soft indication, they feel better. Mm-hmm. That's the good stuff. Mm-hmm. That's that's the stuff that that the Olympians aren't supposed to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they do feel stronger, and they deal do feel more energetic. But it's kind of superhuman, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, a, a better health aspect is to do it the old-fashioned way: mm-hmm. work hard and work out and and stay fit mm-hmm. and that stuff. But not yeah. too fit. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything in moderation. <laughs> exactly. I was sort of involved with yep. the competitive cycling world for a while, and there was a lot of hypogonadism among some very fit men that I was <laughs> that I was around. <laughs> but it's another exactly. discussion for another day. <laughs> um, okay, so one thing that interests me is we've talked about how some men are hesitant to seek care unless they've um, you know, they have a specific issue often related to their sexual health that they're interested in seeking care for, but it does seem that they may be proactive either on the internet or in the whole industry of supplements, uh, self-treating, so to speak. Do you have any thoughts on this in terms of things that may be useful for people to take or what you think about supplements in general in terms of men's health? I'm, I'm a big fan of a multivitamin, um, uh, once or twice or three times a week. I don't think daily multivitamin use is is critical because each one of those vitamin pills, if we read the ingredients, they are above and beyond a daily recommendation amount. Mm -hmm. And a lot of vitamins uh, build up easily in the system if if we're getting them in our diets or with a supplement. So I don't think we need a multivitamin every day. Uh, The idea of a vitamin D pill is interesting um, and, uh, the whole, the whole conflict with, with vitamin D, uh, recommendations, uh, as it relates to sun exposure, uh, is, is interesting. The dermatologists do not want us out in the sun for 20 minutes a day, but the, the metabolic physicians know that that is a great way to have adequate vitamin D. Uh, most of us don't walk around with our shirts off, so... So having a vitamin D3 pill two to three times a week also is, is a reasonable thing. And, and that is a cancer risk reducer in some cancers, and it's also a cardiovascular health promoter, mm-hmm. uh, a, a v- simple vitamin D3. 
Um, beyond that, as it relates to what I deal with, we've been struggling for the past several decades to come up with uh, this fruit or that vegetable or this supplement that promotes quote-unquote prostate health, and we've not been able to find it. Saw palmetto hasn't panned out as a, as a, a very useful supplement. Uh, when patients swear by it and they tell me that they're on it, I don't argue, but I, but I tell them it, it's probably costing you more than it's worth. Mm-hmm. The same thing with most of the prostate health formulas. We've tested those individually over the last, the different elements of those over the last couple of decades, and, um, and they just don't help, and some of them can cause uh, worsened um, disease processes. So too much vitamin E, not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, too much selenium, not a good idea. Um, and, and, and the list goes on. I mean, we've been through the tomato product, lycopene pill thing. Mm-hmm. We've been through the pomegranate thing. Uh, and I remember several years ago at one of our national meetings, uh, after a, a, a couple of articles came out about tomato products, in the vendor area, there were the tomato growers with all these people <laughs> packed in there with a big section hammered out because they're making tons of money. The next year, <laughs> the same thing happened with the pomegranate people. Oh my and the poor tomato guys were in a ghost town and the pomegranate people had tons of people. And, and so I just have watched this process and we, we've not found anything that is, um, that, that is truly very helpful. Uh, again, low fat diet, um, regular exercise, avoiding uh, sedentary lifestyle. The the a thing that frequently comes up is ejaculatory frequency, and that's a it's a strange thing to say on a podcast or on the, the media, but <laughs> but that 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 comes up. It's a hard thing to do research on, but it seems to make sense that that having things working regularly like stretching or, or avoiding constipation, all that stuff is good for your health. And so that's something that's talked about. But, but other, than, other than those considerations, I'm, I'm not a big supplement guy for prostate health. Well, that's great to know. Um, I am a little disappointed that you don't have that magic pill for us that we were hoping for for our male listeners. Right, right. But if you have to bring it back down to basics and say the same thing we say at pretty much the end of every episode, right? eat well, right. exercise, take care of yourself, have good relationships. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's all pretty universal for these health-related topics. Exactly. No, we actually have, have um, cancer research that, that tells us that if we have a lot of friends— uh, and there's an arm in that research that talks about going to church. And the reason I tell patients about that is because that kind of implies that you're socially active and you have a lot of relationships. Mm-hmm. So I don't shy away from telling people, go out with your buds and go to church. Mm-hmm. And that fills the bill for, for, that, for that section of cancer research patients that do better because they're, they're better supported and they're happier, they have less stress. And we're showing more and more that stress plays a negative role in some classic health-related issues, stroke, heart attack. There appears to be uh, bad chemicals generated by too much stress, uh, and loneliness throws into that mm-hmm. uh, as it relates to stroke risk and, and heart attack risk. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so all the, 
the, again, the social stuff that we learned when we were in the second grade, um, play in the playground and have buddies, it, it's, it's still important. 100%. Well, we appreciate you so much for joining us and providing your time and your expertise to those of us here on the WellCast. And we loved having the opportunity to talk to you today. I know we both learned a lot and are excited to spread this um, research and information to other males and women who have men in their life as well. <laughs> who make the appointments. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stereotypically. <laughs> and to our listeners. Well, and I, I love it. I love it when the whole, when the couple is there, when I see oh, a male yeah. patient and vice versa, uh, especially in older folks, because two heads are better than one. And, uh, it's it's good to to answer everybody's questions in one sitting. So I, I love to see the couple there. A hundred percent. And to our listeners, if you have questions or comments, please reach out to us at sawellness at stalfonsus.org or drop us a line in the comment section. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of St. Alphonsus Wellcast, brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Wellbeing and the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Always be sure to catch new episodes by subscribing to us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. We hope you'll tune in again. Until then, be well.